Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Smith. Today's episode features an Answering the Questions forum where healthcare professionals interact directly with expert faculty to get authoritative answers to their pressing questions about non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, also known as NASH, in the setting of HIV. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled, Don't Forget About the Liver, NASH in Patients with HIV. During this podcast, Dr. Jurgen Rockstro and Dr. Giada Sebastiani will improve healthcare professionals' awareness of the prevalence, assessment, and current treatment landscape for NASH in patients mono-infected with HIV. In addition, they will discuss best practices to appropriately screen for, identify, and manage NASH among persons with HIV. For more information on Dr. Rockstra and Dr. Sebastiani, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. Thank you, Courtney, and hello, everybody, and thank you for joining. So you can see the full program of Medical Minutes at clinicaloptions.com HIV, and you know there are four modules. The first one is NASH, the big picture, which addresses the definition, what is NASH, and what does it lead to, and what does this, the clinical concern we have with this disease Two is NASH and HIV cause for concern and tells a little bit about the prevalence of NASH in people living with HIV, what factors contribute to the development of NASH. Then the third module is NASH and HIV, how to diagnose, so what kind of markers do we have and how do we establish best the diagnosis of NASH, what do the guidelines say. And then our fourth module finally talks about treatment strategies for NASH in patients with HIV. So what is there in the treatment armentarium for NASH? And what kind of lifestyle modifications can we perform? So that's all what you can find in these different modules. And we're going to summarize the main key messages from these models. So I'll hand over to Jada to do the summary of the first module and the second module. Jada, please. Thank you, Jürgen. And it's a real pleasure to be here with all of you. So for the first module, as Jürgen already mentioned, uh, we described in detail the epidemiology and the associations of NAFLD in the specific setting of uh, HIV infection. We know that NAFLD is often associated with metabolic dysfunction, and it is also the most common reason for liver enzyme elevations in people with HIV. It can also cause liver inflammation and damage, which we also referred as to NASH, and it can lead to liver complications, including liver cirrhosis, liver failure, and liver cancer. So it's not a benign condition, but it can lead to increased liver-related morbidity and mortality. NAFLD and NASH, we have seen in module one that are more frequent and also more severe in people with HIV. And there are other causes of concern because of the NASH pathogenesis in the specific setting of people with HIV, which is more complex. And this is due to lifelong utilization of antiretroviral treatment and also to HIV-related inflammation. Indeed, we know that metabolic conditions and antiretroviral therapy are major risk factors of NASH in people with HIV. And NASH affects multiple organs, causing higher cardiovascular mortality and risk of developing metabolic dysfunction and frailty. As such, again, this is not just a liver condition, but it's also considered a multisystemic condition. And now I, I leave the virtual microphone to Jürgen for the other 
two modules. Great. Th thank you. So obviously, if this liver disease is more frequent in people living with HIV, then obviously diagnosis becomes really important. So we have this third module, which really deals with how to best diagnose NAFLD and NASH in people living with HIV. Note that we also have a clinical thought on this in a podcast, so there are also other material around this important uh, area of how to diagnose NAFLD and NASH in people with HIV. You see here in the table the available non-invasive test for hepatic steatosis and liver fibrosis. So actually, you can see there is a whole range of different tests, and you may be familiar with some more than with others. Some are indeed also adding cost, so not everyone is using them to the same extent, but particularly under the green box, you will see very simple tests which can be done with routine parameters you assess in the regular care of someone who has HIV. And it really does include simple things like liver enzymes, age, platelets, and so forth, all things in BMI, things you collect anyway. So it will not add any costs and it allows you at least to find out who is at risk. There are also tools in the imaging area which are more commonly used. Remember that when the new hepatitis drugs became available for hepatitis C in particular, the important pre-diagnostic tests were also including to assess fibrosis stage. And so many centers now have a transit elastography, which allows to assess fibrosis stage. And you can use with the same device, you can measure continued attenuation parameters, which allows you to assess the degree of hepatic steatosis. You can also use a magnetic resonance imaging derived proton density fat fraction, which is though more costly and not available necessarily to everyone. The EX, so the European AIDS Clinical Society guidelines, have really developed a table. And I think one of the assets and highlights of the EX guidelines actually is that they deal a lot with comorbidities, people living with HIV. So beyond recommending when and with what to start antiviral therapy, you can find a lot of important information. And that includes how to assess and monitor people with HIV with regard to suspected NAFLD and metabolic risk factors. And it really starts off with a simple ultrasound. And if you have the suggestion of fatty liver disease, then they recommend to calculate FIB4 or NAFLD. So one of these two very simple parameters, which I showed you before, which uh, again includes really very simple parameters like age, BMI, platelets, presence of diabetes or insulin resistance, AST, ALT, and albumin, that would be for the NAFLD fibrosis score. So very simple parameters. And then depending on how the values are and if they're suggestive of significant liver disease, then in this algorithm, you further will have to decide whether you can still match this with your own clinic because there is no sign of advanced liver disease or there are signs of more advanced liver disease where you then wisely would refer for management in the hepatology clinic for further workup. So our module around the diagnosis really can be summarized that in patients with HIV mononfection, MRI, PDFF, and fibrocin cap are highly accurate for diagnosis of steatosis. Liver biopsy, though, is essential for diagnosis of NASH, as clinical biochemical or imaging techniques cannot distinguish NASH from steatosis. So it's really the presence of inflammation with ballooning inflammation in the histology, which allows the diagnosis of NASH. And that remains a challenge for this particular disease because obviously a liver biopsy always is associated with some issues. NASH must be diagnosed uh, as, as stated by liver biopsy according to guidelines. And it does show steatosis, hepatocyte, ballooning, and lobular inflammation.
So with that being said, I think I'll hand over to Jada to summarize the main key points from our fourth model around treatment. Jada, please. Yes, uh, thank you for the great uh, summary, summary of the diagnostic portion. So in terms of treatment strategies, our uh, module four detailed uh, the need uh, as a cornerstone of lifestyle modification and weight reduction, which is really in all the NAFLD guidelines is recommended in all patients with NAFLD. While pharmacotherapy should be reserved for individuals with NASH, particularly in those with significant fibrosis or at risk for progression. It is also underlined also in the EACS guidelines that some of the options with proven efficacy include the pioblitazone, vitamin E, which has been specifically validated in people with HIV and also bariatric surgery. And in HIV-associated NAFLD, uh, besides vitamin E, tesamorelin is also an option that has demonstrated the efficacy in the setting of HIV. And now I, I leave for the question and answer uh, period. Great. So uh, now is the time where you can ask anything you want to ask about the different models you may have seen or our little brief summary here. And as you're getting ready to put your questions into the question boxes, let me maybe start off with one question for Jada around the epidemiology of or the prevalence of NAFLD in people living with HIV. So we said that it's more frequent in people with HIV. We said that it can range between 10 and 65%. But that is such a broad difference. So some papers say 10%, some say 65%. So why do you think there's this huge variety in the estimate for prevalence? of uh, NAFLD in people with HIV? Yes, uh, great question, Jürgen, and I think this is of great interest for our audience. So I think there are two reasons uh, which explain the variability of uh, prevalence uh, of uh, NAFLD in people with HIV. The first is that especially the first publications on the topic uh, did not uh, use uh, consecutive uh, uh, recruitment of patients, but rather they selected patients with uh, chronically elevated liver transaminases or with other risk factors for NAFLD. And the second is the difference in terms of uh, the diagnostic tool used in different uh, publications. For example, some uh, of the early studies used uh, ultrasound. Afterwards, it was fibroscan with control attenuation parameter. And afterward, again, for example, MRI, PDFF, as you mentioned, this is a very accurate tool to diagnose hepatic steatosis, for example. And uh, I think that this is uh, the, the reason why we need more and more epidemiological studies also assessing the natural history of the disease, which is still not very clear in the setting of HIV infection. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. And I, I think what we really need are cohorts of HIV mono-infected individuals where we follow them up over time to find out how many people really do develop NAFLD and NASH. Because you're right that particularly in the old days when some of the non-invasive markers were not very well validated and liver biopsy was more commonly performed, it was obviously the inclination to biopsy, for example, people with more advanced liver disease, because obviously you wanted to sort of have a reason why you do a liver biopsy. And for that, you wanted to have at least signs of more significant disease. And uh, those were often, for example, patients who had a long history of DDI or D4T use, which contributes to the development of fatty liver disease. And so there's always a little bit of bias of which patient population you use. And I think in the end, if we say this is very prevalent and this is of concern, particularly in an aging HIV population, 
then uh, obviously makes really sense to build up big courts like the one you have in, in Montreal. So we have a lot of questions now coming in. So let me ask you one question here. Is there a need to repeat imaging to assess progression or just fit for NFS? I think both of us probably can give an answer to this question. So imaging depends uh, what you mean for imaging. I, I guess you mean fibroscan or MRE or uh, any imaging yeah. uh, technique. Or ultrasound. could even be the initial ultrasound. Uh, so for exactly, so or shear wave ultrasound uh, elastography. So usually in terms of, uh, of guidelines, uh, the NAFLD guidelines, which are not specifically the AX guidelines, but the general NAFLD guidelines uh, recommend to repeat uh, usually a non-invasive test for liver fibrosis every, every two to three years. Every two years would be those who are a little bit more at risk for progression. For example, patients with diabetes are, as Jürgen said very convincingly, people with HIV should be considered at, uh, at high risk compared to those who are HIV uninfected. So I think every couple of years, uh, at least those with NAFLD, at least one non-invasive test for fibrosis should be repeated in those who don't have fibrosis, of course, at one of the other time points. In terms of imaging, repeating imaging, well, uh, usually uh, the guidelines for non-invasive tests of diagnosis uh, in liver disease recommend the combination of two non-invasive techniques, uh, possibly one biomarker and one imaging. So you should uh, possibly combining, when, especially when the biomarker is positive, you should have an imaging technique to confirm that that patient may be at risk of having some advanced fibrosis. Yeah, so, you know, I, th I think that uh, the EX guidelines state that you should repeat imaging. I think it's like something in the time frame of two to five years. Obviously, it depends on your baseline risks. And I think that's one of the issues we have in the HIV patient population is that we're not absolutely sure how much higher the risk for development of NAPLD and NASH is. But if that is true, then maybe we need more stringent criteria for re-screening than in people without HIV infection. And to give you an example, I would say, for example, if it turns out that increased body weight, which we are now seeing sometimes in conjunction with some of the modern integrase inhibitor-based therapies leads to more hepatic steatosis, then indeed maybe the frequency of when we screen for that may have to change. So I think this is still also a subject of ongoing research, but I would agree that in, in general, depending on which guideline you look at, there is clearly a need to repeat imaging. The next question, if you have a patient whose NFS is 0.675, is it still worth getting a fiber scan or should we skip that process and refer them to the hepatology clinic? Yes, that's again a very good question, Jürgen. On again on this uh, concept that you were mentioning of the care pathways uh, in clinical practice, according to guidelines, like a serum biomarker, which uh, a first test like NAFO fibrosis score or the FIP4, which are positive, let's say, you should uh, still uh, get a fiber scan to confirm the, the result. It's true that. Uh, in most of the cases, at least in HIV medicine, you would already refer the patient to a pathology to get that fiber scan. But basically, those who have a fiber scan over 8 kilopascal, these are the ones who usually are linked to care in the pathology clinics. Very good question. And there is a lot, actually, of research, as you know, on, on two tire care pathways for identification of yeah. patients with advanced fibrosis in, uh, in yeah. Africa. Yeah, I would add that if your NFS is 
above 0.675, then it is suggestive fibrosis. So I would, I would say it depends a little bit on how difficult it is for you to get a fibro scan, right? I mean, if that's like a big issue or a cost issue, then I would refer to the hepatologic because they could easily do that. And with that abnormal value, you definitely want to have a liver specialist involved. Let me ask you one question here. Would the use of protease inhibitors be an independent risk factor for NASH, in your opinion, and perhaps be used for screening? Would the chronic inflammation from HIV infection be considered an independent risk factor? And if so, would biosuppression make any difference? Maybe I can take that question because we've worked on that particular issue. We looked at non-invasive markers in HIV monoaffected patients and were able to, to find that indeed those who had ongoing replication, so increased chronic inflammation from ongoing HIV replication, had more unfavorable fibrosis markers. And so they were more likely to uh, develop uh, fibrosis. And that's very interesting because uh, you may know that HIV can infect Kupfer cells and hepatocytes. So there is obviously HIV activity also in liver cells, and that can lead to inflammation and inflammation of the liver always increases your risk for fibrosis. And in the trial, which you may remember, the trial which sort of started HIV therapy very early above 500 CD4 count versus waiting until the CD4 count dropped to 350, there was also a sub-study looking at fibrosis development. And for those who started early, there was less fibrosis development over time as a sign of an earlier control of chronic inflammation. So that is clearly, I, I would answer that with yes, that is an independent risk factor. And with regard to the use of protease inhibitor, I think we really have to separate a little bit within the class of protease inhibitors, because the old protease inhibitors like indinavir or lupinavir were associated with increased risk for development of diabetes and insulin resistance. So they would clearly be uh, independent risk factors uh, for that very reason. Also, they contribute to dyslipidemia and weight gain, uh, which obviously also may be independent risk factors. Now, these drugs are not being used very much anymore, and um, a boosted darunavir, which can be boosted either with low-dose rutonavir or with cobicistat, I would say the risk is much lower because there is no risk for insulin resistance, at least in the CLAMP studies. Uh, so, so that probably is, is not necessarily a risk factor for NASH in that particular setting. I don't know if you want to add something to that, Jada. Yeah, I think you, you already provided a very detailed uh answer on the topic. I think that overall, uh, there are several preliminary data that show that uh, it's difficult, first of all, to tease out the effect of antiretrovirals versus uh, HIV itself. Uh, but we know that uh, HIV in uh, cytologic studies it can actually infect hepatocytes. So there is possibility also that beside antiretrovirals, there is also some direct effect of HIV on the hepatocyte causing some fibrosis. But I think this is a great question. There is a lot to, more to be done uh, in terms of uh, elucidating the pathogenesis and, uh, and the direct effect of HIV and uh, of antiretrovirals. Great. Then we have a question from my dear friend, Roger Leblanc from Montreal. He says, alcohol is pervasive, often very difficult to eliminate, which is absolutely true, or to evaluate. Any suggestions? I've been using Ozempic to obtain weight loss in HIV-positive persons with reduction in AST-ALT. Your thoughts? I think this is a, a great, both of them, there are two questions in one, actually, and they're both great. In terms of alcohol, it is true. We know that, for example, alcohol uh, consumption is uh, probably it's a bit increased in this uh, specific uh, population. 
And uh, if we look specifically at, at uh, the definition of NAFLD, alcohol should be excluded. On the other side, and we discussed this with Jürgen while we were preparing uh, these sessions and these modules, uh, there is a relatively newer way of defining fatty liver disease, which is a MAFLD, metabolic associated fatty liver disease, where instead of excluding basically many things to arrive at the diagnosis of fatty liver disease, you actually rule in through the presence of metabolic risk factors. So I think if this new definition will be more and more used, probably the gray area related to alcohol will be easier to overcome because obviously if you have a very strong type 2 diabetes, for example, that is not very well controlled or a metabolic syndrome, it is very possible that patient and most of the fibrosis is driven by the diabetes. In any case, in clinical practice, as we know very well, it's important to try to tease out the use of alcohol and Total alcohol abstinence is absolutely recommended in patients with advanced fibrosis due to metabolic fatty liver disease. I think because the phase two result in NASH, basically, of semaglutide show clear reduction in necroinflammation in patients with NASH with the use of of semaglutide. On the other side, there is no dedicated data yet on HIV, but I want to underline that, for example, in the last liver meeting of the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, there have been several lectures where they have underlined that possibly when you have a patient with NAFLD or NASH, when you have to choose an anti-diabetic medication, it may be useful to start uh, at least thinking about some that may induce weight loss, because as we know, this can actually induce fibrosis regression. So although there is no uh, recommendation yet, because we're waiting for phase three data, obviously, I think this is, you know, something that we are headed towards. And I'm interested in knowing what Jürgen think about uh, this, specifically in the setting of HIV. Yeah. So let me maybe start with the alcohol Think that's obviously something which is really important to address and, and frequently missed because obviously it's not the easiest subject to talk about because no one really wants to say how much he drinks necessarily. But obviously, if you look at many dietary interventions, just by leaving away alcohol, people usually lose around three kilo for the first four weeks. And that's already quite a significant contribution to weight loss. And if you actually look at changes of three kilograms, that already may have an impact on your fat content. So that's at least something to recommend and for people to try. And in the different Mediterranean diets, they always say the best thing to drink is water, which is obviously difficult because water doesn't taste necessarily that great. So that's something at least people struggle with to adhere to. And I haven't seen any data in, in HIV-infected individuals yet, and there is no specific recommendation yet in the EX guidelines for prioritization of certain anti-diabetics at this point. But clearly, I think at least in, in the setting of uh, the HIV world, particularly since we're seeing more and more weight gain, particularly with certain antivirals, I think weight gain is the main driver of hepatic steatosis. And so I would agree that probably using something which leads to weight loss is going to be something which has a future. So I'm looking forward, to hopefully, to see some data also in particular in HIV patients with weight gain, whether this has an impact on fat content. All right, let's see. There is the next question. How do you monitor response to treatment? Is treatment for life? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. 
I would say that the, the main treatment is really lifestyle modification. And I can tell you, because I'm overweight myself, that is a that's a treatment for life. <laughs> you start every year with a new diet and it's a continuous effort. In the module four, which we have, there's a pyramid of different weight losses you can achieve, for example. And, and there's also a column which says how many people sustain this weight loss after a given time. So if you take like, say, a reduction of 10% of your body weight, you can see that that's probably less than 10% are able to maintain that after a year. So that's one of the big issues. You can obviously monitor response treatment. For example, you can see whether the liver enzymes drop, that that would be one. So if you have a better control of lipids, if you lose weight, then you're going to see the liver values are going to drop. You may better get a better control of diabetes. And you could obviously also uh, repeat your non-invasive scores or, for example, CAP measurement. Jada, any thoughts? on monitoring response to treatment and uh, I think it's a great question as you said because we don't have medium or long term data on effects of interventions in the specific setting of HIV so many many research should still be done but as you said lifestyle which is the cornerstone has to be something really on a long term used use for sure in terms of pharmacotherapy, as we know, tesamorelin, for example, or vitamin E, uh, which uh, has been studied by my team, we have used just for some uh, specific time frames. So we don't really know yet which is the ideal period uh, that the patients should be on these treatments. In our case, for example, the vitamin E we, we gave for six months and then there was a a carryover effect that the liver transaminases stayed actually normal for much low, at least double of the period that the patient was were on. But for example, in the PIVEN study, which was the, the milestone paper on the use of vitamin E in NASH, the, the treatment duration was two years. And afterwards, this is what we use usually in clinical practice. We use for a couple of years, then we see if the patient responds to transaminases, we discontinue for a while. And we, but really, I think we need a lot of more data on medium to long-term effect of this pharmacotherapy to have specific ideas in the setting of people with HIV. Yeah, well, I, I think we're going to get more data as more compounds become available. And I think this is clearly a very busy research area. And as more promising compounds are going to be developed. If you look at the trials, most of the trials are sort of, first of all, looking whether there's change in inflammation of the liver. So our liver enzymes going down. And, and obviously, you can see whether there are changes in fat content and fibrosis levels, because even with the diet, you can achieve a reversion of fibrosis in a significant amount of patients if you lose some weight. So that isn't a very uh, reassuring issue is that the dietary effects are very good. But uh, unfortunately, it's very difficult uh, to keep weight loss uh, stable. I agree with you, actually, Jürgen. I think it's very important, even if uh, only 10, 15% of our patients will achieve that 10% or more of weight loss, which will uh, induce fibrosis regression, it is always to be underlined with the patient that even if they have cirrhosis, if there is no portal hypertension yet, weight loss can actually still regress fibrosis and cirrhosis even. So I think it's, it's very important to stress and to underline this with our patients. Absolutely. All right. Let's see. There's the next question. Do you ever use gamma GT to screen for occult alcohol excess in those whose history you doubt? Totally non-specific, but sensitive. Other better screening tests for occult alcohol excess. Yeah, so I want, I'm going to wonder what you're going to say to that because I know that there are differences. Also, I know that in North America, a lot of people are not doing gamma GT at all. 
In Germany, this is done always in conjunction with ALT and AST. So it, you, you're going to see whether you like it or not. And indeed, if you have a very high gamma GT, which is higher than the ALT, AST elevation, that at least would be a sign. You can also look for IgA, whether that is elevated. Those would be indirect signs. It is very unspecific. I would agree. You can also measure alcohol levels. Uh, that's something you can do. But uh, it is, at least in our country, it's something we lose, but it is a very unspecific screening method because it costs, also increases, for example, with certain antivirals, like if you have someone still on nevirapine, almost all of the nevirapine-treated patients have a gamma-GT increase. You can really do some harm here by suggesting someone is drinking who's really not. So that's a very difficult issue, actually. Jetta. Any thoughts uh, or comments? Being, uh, being of uh, Italian, so uh, European origins, of course, I use the gamma GT. As you yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, but uh, that European school, uh, you know, you carry over the ocean, you know. So uh, I, I think we actually, I, I use, I think we, we still use the gamma GT. As you said, it's non-specific, absolutely. And especially in the setting of NASH, because even NASH itself can increase gamma GT. However, sometimes, you know, the combination of that, of some uh, MCV that is elevated over an AST-ALT ratio that is uh, elevated versus more ALT elevation, I think it can be still useful in clinical practice. So probably not alone, the use of gamma GT, but in a, in a wider context, uh, I think it's, it's still useful. And I do use it uh, as you do. Great. Let's see. There's the next question. Are we to assume that then that a patient with well-controlled diabetes, controlled lipidemia, and undetectable HIV RNA on ART are at lower risk and what further prevention measures are helpful? I would say, at least from our data, that if you have a well-controlled diabetes and lipidemia yeah. and undetected viral load, that you are indeed at a lower risk for fibrosis development. There are patients who are actually lean and but have metabolic risk factors and still have a considerable amount of NAFLT and NASH, unfortunately. So it is not completely protective, but it's clearly better to have that. And one of the things which we have to highlight is that statins do not have a therapeutic impact on NASH. But since one of the hallmarks of the clinical outcome of NASH is cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, Statins are really important because they do minimize the risk for these cardiovascular events, which are also more increased in conjunction with fatty liver disease. So in a certain way, that is the best you can do. I think that what we're maybe doing not enough is recommending exercise. I think that's something is increasingly getting attention. So encouraging people, and I think that's, at least for me, becomes particularly true in the, in the COVID pandemic where people are, you know, the gyms were closed in various periods. So people are moving much less. And so encouraging people to move and then uh, I think a healthy diet, which means less uh, meat and more vegetables, more olive oil is always a good thing to do. Shada, any additional comments or questions or ideas? I, I totally agree with, the, with your point of view. I think that uh, it's also important to stress the, the relevance of exercise in the context of NAFLD and NASH. Because uh, the, the combination, actually, of, uh, of a diet and uh, regular physical activity is what is recommended by the, the guidelines on NAFLD. So uh, the use uh, of uh, regular exercise is important uh, for two reasons. First, because it has been associated in reduction of transaminases and fat, not fibrosis alone, but in combination with the diet, even that, and weight loss. 
And second, because uh, as uh, we, we were mentioning the important cardiovascular risk that comes with NASH and even a little bit more with HIV, as the infectious disease specialists know better than me, I think that regular exercise is really something that should be pursued. And in terms of the diet, the Mediterranean diet, as you mentioned, Jürgen, is, is the one probably where we have the strongest data. Also, uh, minimize the consumption of red processes meat. There is a very nice study in Journal of Hepatology of a couple of years ago showing that uh, red processes meat, unfortunately, is associated with NASH. Uh, so this is something to avoid. And the worst of all are soda drinks. So all these uh, sugary drinks. So as you said before, go for water. It may not be tasty, but it's the best. <laughs> 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 I already see you on a TV commercial advertising water here. All right. So, so there is a question targeted to you, Shadaf. She points out that vitamin E high doses above 800 international unit were associated with a negative cardiovascular outcome by the British. I think she refers to a study that's what her memory tells her that was around 2003-2004. Now, HIV, as you already pointed out yourself, is associated with increased cardiovascular risk too, which is absolutely true. So what is the upper limit dose of vitamin E in your study? The doses that we use in the study is 800 units per day, which are the same uh, dose which has been used in the PIVANS trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I know that there are some uh, evidences from the literature, also the select study, for example, of 20 or 2011 in increased risk of prostate cancer, for example, and also this that you mentioned in cardiovascular, in the case of NASH, basically, I haven't seen uh, this kind of side effects uh, in my clinical practice. And I think because we use vitamin E for a much shorter period that those studies have addressed, and possibly also we don't go over the 800 units uh, per day. So I don't have uh, concern in the sense. I, I haven't seen uh, cardiovascular side effects uh, in our study. But as I said, this was a, a one-year study. Great. What is a reasonable approach in people for which weight loss is not possible due to normal BNI? That's a great question. So for those who have lean NAFLD and NASH, what would be your treatment recommendation there? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, lean NAFLD NASH, it's something that we start understanding just since a few years, basically. And uh, my group also published a study specifically on lean NAFLD in people with HIV which possibly it's even more, more frequent than in the general NAFLD. But uh, besides that, uh, still, uh, I think that uh, regular physical exercise may still be benefit in lean NAFLD NASH where a patient doesn't exercise before uh, at the diagnosis, basically. And after that, uh, probably the approach, of course, would be to have a good dietary regimen and finally, I think that in those cases, it, these are the cases possibly where pharmacotherapy, especially in those with NASH uh, risk for progression and fibrosis, uh, should be used. But lean NAFLD NASH is still something that we are trying to understand. And I think this is a great question and a great uh, topic for research and for targeted uh, interventions. Absolutely. Another great question. Integrase inhibitors have greatly increased the safety and tolerability of a highly active antiviral therapy, is the weight gain being attributed to this class a potential future contributor to NASH, uh, ASTLT elevation? So I can maybe take that question because we published a paper this year, and this is really a large cohort of mono-infected individuals, and we try to tease out how the proportion of people with significant hepatic 
steatosis changes over time and also how the group of people with significant fibrosis increase over time. And interestingly, there was a correlation between the more modern second-generation integrase inhibitors and weight gain and development of more severe hepatic steatosis. I think it is very strongly correlated to weight gain. It's interesting that in this analysis, also TDF, which has a known weight suppressive effect, was actually protective and TAF further contributed to weight gain because it doesn't have that weight suppressive effect of TDF, I guess. So that that is something to worry about. I think we're far from the point where there's any clinical outcome data which suggests that there's more significant amount of NASH and we don't have any histology data. And, and you know, so I, there's a word of caution here. But it tells me if HIV is a lifelong treatable disease and everyone's on an integrase inhibitor and we treat for 30, 40, 50 years, this may be a concern. So I think that's why we need these cohorts to, you know, in observational courts to look how that changes over time, because you also know that there are people on a second generation integrase inhibitor who don't gain any weight at all. So it is not a clear cut question. And I think it comes also down to identifying those at risk and what to do. And we also have no good strategy. It's not like switching to different antiviral necessarily means they're going to lose weight. So I think there's still more open questions than answers, but it's clearly uh, something where we would at least flag uh, some concern. Thank you very much, Dr. Rockstraw and Dr. Sebastiani. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder to view the full program, don't forget about the liver, NASH and patients with HIV, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.